0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Today, we're going to take a brief detour from the Sandy Melgar case to update all of you who have been following along with our season two case, the murder of Elnora Griffin and the wrongful conviction of Ed Eight. been over two years since we stopped covering Ed's case on the podcast, but the work and the investigation has never stopped. As a brief recap, Elnora Griffin was murdered in her home in August of 1993. About a month later, Ed Eights was arrested, and in 1996, he went to trial, but the jury was hung and a mistrial was declared. Two years later, the Smith County DA's office took Ed back to trial again And this time, three Allen charges later, Ed was convicted and sentenced to 99 years in the Texas Department of Corrections. In 2016, we began working on Ed's case. We got the Innocence Project of Texas involved, and attorney Allison Clayton was assigned to be Ed's attorney. She and her students worked alongside with all of us for the next two years, and in 2018, Ed was granted parole while maintaining his innocence. And on September 5th of last year, Ed walked out of prison, a free man, and finally went back home to his family. As things stand right now, Ed is a free man, but he is still a convicted murderer. But Ed's attorney, Allison, has refused to give up the fight and has continued to work towards Ed's full, actual innocence exoneration. And today, She finally got permission from the District Attorney's Office of Smith County to fill all of you in on what's been happening over the last year and a half. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com.
1: Hey, Allison, how are you?
2: Hey, good, thanks. How are you doing?
1: Really well, really well. Thank you for calling in today. We've all been anxiously awaiting any updates on Ed's case for the past several months. And as you let me know this week, you finally got clearance to release some of the information that uh, you've been working on for the last year and a half.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, I have been anxiously waiting to talk to you in the Truth and Justice Army for it feels like forever. As soon as I started getting the results back, I wanted to tell all of all of your listeners and tell you and let y'all know what was going on. But, you know, we have considerations that we have to step carefully and think carefully about every move, but I have been dying to talk to y'all for so long.
1: Yeah. And it's been killing me too, being, being in the dark as well. So for you listeners, Alison, just um, prior to uh, recording this interview, she sent me over some documentation and and some results from uh, some of the testing that's been done. So, We're going to go through all that and talk about what's been found out and what it means for Ed and for Elnora. Uh, And before we get there, Allison, uh, have you talked to Ed lately?
2: Oh, yes. I talk to Ed at least once, twice, sometimes three times a week. It is a daily joy for me that I can text Ed, good morning, I hope you have a great day, or that Ed texts me. It's been fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's been awesome. I love it when I I see my phone light up with Ed calling me, and he's just... You know, I spoke to him just two days ago. He called me on his way home from work, and he sounds so incredibly happy right now. And remember, he just kept saying he's just he's so happy. You know, his his PO is uh, starting to lift some of the restrictions. He was all excited because he got to go to the movies now, and he can go out to restaurants. And he is just he's loving life right now.
2: Yeah, I live for um. You know, Kim and Ed posts their Sunday matching outfits, and I just right. <laughs> live for those posts on Sunday. It just it it makes me smile every time.
1: Yeah, their church outfits are, are something else. They they are always looking sharp when they go in for uh service on Sundays, and and I just really like you know I get and and I know from you and I talking, you get a lot of the same thing. It'll just randomly out of nowhere text a picture of you. He sent me one the other day of just him smiling on the couch, no caption. <laughs> just he just texts me a picture of him sitting on the couch grinning.
2: Yeah, it's it's the it's those texts always make my day. And you know, it's a pretty rough, um, pretty rough life that this can be sometimes. But man, I get one of those texts from Ed, or, or he'll call me. He'll just randomly call me. He'll be like, "I'm driving back home from Home Depot, and I wanted to give you a call." Yeah, and I'm just like, "You're you're making my life right now. Thank you, Ed." <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel the exact same way. And based on what I'm seeing on some of these reports, it's it's looking like. Ed's got some, some things to be happy about.
2: Oh, yeah. It's been looking really good. The, the investigation's been going really well, and I am very, very pumped about it.
1: Awesome. Well, let's let's start to dig into that. First of all, um, most of the listeners are aware, maybe not all of them, but there has been a changing of the guard in Smith County. Uh, Matt Bingham did not run for re-election for DA, and a new gentleman, Jacob Putman, ran for DA and won the election, and he took office in January. So, Allison, with you, because, you know, before Bingham's term came to an end, you know, he and and I know personally because I've spoken with him personally, uh, David Dobbs had really come around and were actively engaged in this investigation into who killed Elmore Griffin. Um, So can you talk a little bit about what your experience was like working with Matt and David and then how that transition has gone from them to working with D.A. Putman now that he's taken over?
2: Uh, Yeah, sure. So Matt was always very great to work with, as was David. There were multiple times whenever I was trying to find something. And, you know, because I'm not law enforcement, I would get nowhere. People, you know, wouldn't do anything for me, wouldn't pull evidence for me or anything like that. And I would let Matt know. And then, you know, it would just take one email from Matt's secretary and it would be done. And he was willing to do that. Uh, so Matt was, was very good to work with. Whenever we wanted DNA testing, Matt is the one who said, yeah, we will agree to that DNA testing. Not only that, but we want to test a bunch of additional items ourselves and we'll pay for that. So Matt was very cool to work with. And, uh, and David was the exact same way. You know, he didn't have to come on, uh, and, and say, you know, I'm interested in seeing justice done. I'm interested in knowing, you know, what the truth really is. You know, he didn't have to say that. He's in private practice now. But he did. And uh, back in, I want to say it was October of 2018, Matt and David drove to Dallas to meet me and one of my uh, student attorneys from the clinic. And we had a long meeting uh, and we just talked a whole bunch about the case. And Matt wanted to know, how can we help you? What's our next step forward? And David wanted to know, how can I help you? He's reached out to me. David has reached out to me multiple times asking, what can I do to help? So they've both been very generous. They've been, you know, very willing to help. So then in at the end of December, Matt left office. Jacob Putman took over. We initiated communications with Jacob immediately. And we were able to go and meet with Jacob in Smith County in March. And we is me and my entire clinic, all of my clinic, We just had a big old road trip. And we drove over to Tyler and we met with Jacob for a very long time. And he is likewise, you know, very open to whatever you need that I can get for you, will get for you. If you really think that this is something that we need to look at seriously, then we're going to look at this seriously. We've been emailing back and forth on various things. He's been very responsive. Later this week, in fact, I talked to his investigator who wants to pick up where Matt's investigator left off. So the DA's office in Smith County, this entire process has been very cooperative.
1: Well, that's great. And it's such a it, it's really been a breath of fresh air. I mean, obviously, when I started the case that that wasn't didn't appear to be the case in Smith County. And, you know, it's for me when I get an email from David Dobbs or a, a call from him talking about, you know, asking questions about the case and things, it's it's, it's just really refreshing to see that Ed now has a whole team over there that I won't say they're on their side because I'm not going to put that on them that they're, you know, they're wanting to exonerate Ed, but they are actively seeking the truth. And I believe 100% the truth is that Edward Hates is innocent. So it's it's refreshing for me to see that they have, you know, the current DA, the former DA and the, the former former DA are actively working to find that truth.
2: Right. And that is a really refreshing thing. Because we have cases going on right now where the district attorney's offices are just steadfast against us. They're obstinate. They've told us in off-the-record conversations, hey, we think your guy's innocent, but we're not going to do anything to help you, and they will actively oppose us in public. It is more common to see district attorneys who are unwilling to help than it is to encounter district attorneys who are willing to help, who are really interested in what the truth is. And that's how Smith County has been. They're in a minority in being reasonable and helpful with us.
1: And that's great. And, and along those lines, uh, I want to touch on real briefly because I know from our conversations that you, you really can't talk much about it, but everybody's wanting an update on Jesse's case, Jesse Eldridge from season three. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, what's going on there, and and why there's not a lot of information to be shared publicly?
2: Of course. So, Jesse's case is still an active investigation. We've been doing DNA testing in that case for a very long time. We got some results back. We've gone to another lab and we're now doing additional DNA testing in that case. We have spoken with a variety of witnesses. That investigation is ongoing. Now, you should know that I'm dying to talk to the Truth and Justice Army to let them know about everything that's going on because, you know, y'all are just so fantastic. But... It's a little bit more complicated whenever we have the Conviction Integrity Unit involved because they have certain considerations which are very well justified. And they just don't want us talking about those things. And my priority, of course, is doing everything that I can to help Jesse. And if that means that I can't talk about what, what we're finding and what's going on in that case, then that's just how it is. But just know that there's things going on in that case. And I'm dying to tell you all about that too, but I can't.
1: And I'm sure our audience also completely understands that. And it's it's exciting to know that the ball is still moving forward in Jesse's case. It just doesn't seem like it because we're not talking about it, but it's happening.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's one of those things where there's a lot of there are a lot of things going on. You just can't see it. But just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there.
0: anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com. no purchase necessary group void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus
1: and but what we can talk about now is what's going on in ed's case so uh, a couple years ago We asked the, our audience, the truth and justice audience to donate some money for DNA testing. And, and we were able to raise for the Innocence Project of Texas. um, Several, I think it was six or $7,000. And then of course you guys have from all of your other donations. And I would encourage everyone to, if you're looking for a place to donate, Innocence Projects of Texas is the, is a great place to do that. Because this is what they're using that money on. You have worked tirelessly to track down some evidence and, and do some DNA testing. And first of all, you tested, I don't know if you know the count, but you guys tested a ton of items for DNA, right?
2: We did. So whenever I very first came back on the case, remember back in like 2016, I think. And I knew that you had already filed a bunch of open records requests with a bunch of people there in Smith County. Well, I needed to file my own open records request too. So I filed one of the biggest Request that I filed was with the um, the sheriff's department. I'm sorry, the sheriff's office. And I was saying, you know, I want to know what evidence there is in the case. Is there going to be anything that we can even test? That's often a problem that I run into is that the evidence will be destroyed. And in fact, IPTX just got a a big grant with Dallas County because the district clerk is destroying a whole bunch of evidence. And we're like, no, please don't destroy evidence in these cases because this is the key thing. So, anyway, I knew that I had to have evidence in order to be able to test something. And so I started of filing this request with the sheriff's office saying, Hey, what evidence do you have? And they kept on telling me, We don't have anything. There's nothing. It's been lost. It's been destroyed. We don't know where it's at. You know, that was so many years ago and we don't keep up with things. And it was just months and months and months of being told no. And that's a very common thing, right? I don't think I've ever actually gotten anything the first time I asked for it. And so finally, I just knew that there had to be something there. There wasn't any kind of destruction of evidence notice. There wasn't anything. It was like the evidence vanished. And I thought that that was implausible. So I finally told the kid who was the evidence custodian, I said, you're going to need to put it in writing that you've destroyed this evidence because this is not going away. And, you know, within the hour, all of a sudden, I get an email. We found four boxes of evidence in the Edward AIDS case. Lo and behold, after like six or seven months of battling with them. And so, of course, the first thing I did was I loaded up my clinic students and we went to Smith County and we went through everything in those boxes. We did a complete evidence review. It took hours and hours. But from that review, we found that there was like everything that we had wanted that was collected from the scene was there in Smith County. And Matt Bingham was very cool about it. You know, I said, I'm going to want testing on a lot of this stuff. And then Matt said, you know, I agree to that and I want to get some testing on this stuff done too. Which of course I'm like, have at, you're not going to find it anywhere. So, So that's what we did. We had a joint order. We entered into a joint order for the testing of like 20, 30, 40 items of evidence. There was a lot of evidence testing that we had done. And we found a lab that we both liked. And we sent all of this evidence off to the lab. And that testing, you know, because there was so much of it to do, that testing took quite a while.
1: And when all of that testing came back, and we'll get into some more specific results, but I think the, the first thing that is the most significant is of all of those items from the crime scene, and we're talking about blood drops, scrapings from under El Nora's fingernails, uh, items from on her body, around it. Of all those items of evidence, how many of those items matched Ed Eight?
2: none not a single one ed is nowhere on that crime scene he is not anywhere on elnora he is not anywhere on her bed sheets on her bed he is not anywhere on the curtains he is not in the kitchen ed is nowhere in that house or on that scene
1: and to me that's that's hugely significant right there with all of the All of the areas, I mean, you guys went scorched earth between everything. You obviously wanted to test everything that uh, should have been directly involved in the crime scene. and, And Matt Bingham went even further with that and just started testing things that were just around the crime scene, anywhere in the house. And absolutely nowhere, none of the DNA comes back to Ed.
2: That's right. And whenever Matt was doing that, asking for, you know, the sheets to be tested and for the house coat to be tested and for all these other things to be tested, I kind of got the feeling that he was looking for Ed. I mean, I don't know if that's what he was doing. It kind of felt like that, but I was like, have that, go for it. You're not going to find him anywhere. And you know what? He didn't. Ed is nowhere on that scene. And he's very significant to me because that is a very violent crime, right? We know that Elnora put up a heck of a fight and that her attacker would have been all over her under her nails Uh, Maybe, you know, like in her oral swab, if she had bitten him or her, you know, you would think that the DNA of the attacker would be all over the place. And I think that it is all over the place, but it's not Ed and he's not there.
1: So we know none of it's Ed and we'll talk about in a minute. Some of the testing did yield some results that are usable for comparison, um, but there was also unknown DNA found in several places throughout the crime scene.
2: Yes, that's correct. There were partial profiles obtained from a couple of different pieces of evidence that, you know, we had the profile, but we don't have anyone to compare it to. We know that it's not Ed's or Elnora's or Leonard's, and we know that it's somebody's because we have the profile, but we're just looking for the person to match it to.
1: Right. So we have none of Ed on the scene. We have unknown DNA profiles on the scene. And one of the areas I want to get into that was. I I think significant. It may not be a surprise, but it's significant. You know, there was the semen stain on the mattress that back in 93, they didn't do DNA testing on. Uh, It was matched by blood type uh, to Leonard Mosley, and it was listed as Leonard Mosley couldn't be excluded because of the, the blood type and the secretor status. But you guys were able to run a full DNA profile on that semen stain, right? And what did you find there?
2: What we found is a couple of different things. First off, we concluded that that stain is for sure semen, that there is DNA in that semen. There are also epithelial cells on the comforter, and the semen and the epithelial cells all belong to Leonard.
1: Right. And, and again, as I mentioned, I, I find that very significant, and I'm not going to ask you to expand too much on this, because I don't want you to overstate your position um, but I'll mention as as I've been working with some DNA experts very recently, and um, after I got word of these results, um, I was I was speaking with one of these experts, and that's that's incredibly significant to me because Leonard Mosley has testified that he hadn't been in that house for over two weeks, and and Johnny has told me on multiple occasions that El Nora kept the house very neat and tidy all the time, and. In order to for, for twenty five years later, and and, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but the that comforter and that stain those those weren't in cold storage, right? Wasn't that just part of what was kept in the uh, the sheriff's department?
2: That's right. None of it was in cold storage,
1: right? And and so the, at trial, that stain was explained away by David Dobbs as you know when he when he asked the DNA expert, you know, you can't date the DNA, and you could still get. You know, DNA could still remain, remain present on a comforter like that, even, you know, for years through several launderings. But to have a quantity enough where they're still pulling epithelial cells and still getting an, a full profile 25 years later, it it seems to me, just based on my limited knowledge of the scene, that, that was that had to be a significant quantity, not just a stain on a mattress that had been through the laundry.
2: Well, that's a very... Interesting and potentially insightful way to think about it.
1: Now, there were some other DNA results that that don't really um, help Ed or get us any closer to the killer, but at least it's, it's it's providing us some more truth and understanding of the crime scene. So, we had some blood spatter marks on the kitchen floor, about eight or nine feet away from Elnor's body, and you were able to get full profile results from those, right?
2: Yes. So, I know that there was a theory going on out there that the killer had dropped some blood on the floor there in the kitchen. And we thought that, you know, that was a pretty plausible theory. So we had those blood droplets tested, but it turns out that those belong to Elnora.
1: Right. Yeah. And that was, that was kind of my thought too. There was a possibility that either the killer had injured themselves, you know, with the use of the knife on their hand, or we even, we even got so detailed as there was a, a piece of trim on the floor right there that was, broken off, that maybe somebody stubbed a toe, but uh, we can now confirm that is absolutely Elnora's blood that was spattered into the kitchen.
2: Yeah, we can. I remember that stubbed toe theory. Whenever you said it, I was like, there is no way, Bob.
1: Hey, it <laughs> fit. There was a broken there was a broken piece of trim right there, but uh, uh, it turns out you were right, and uh, it was uh, p- possibly a silly theory.
2: I'm not going to say that you routinely throw out silly theories, because you're not. But that theory... That one,
1: that one got me. Well, I I wish I could say I told you so at the end of the day, but uh, that's not the case. So we know that that was Elnora's blood, and there was, and a lot of the swabs from Elnora did come back as as her her own blood.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: Okay, the next thing that I want to talk about um, that, that I've been very, very interested in from the beginning are the fingerprints. So this crime occurred in 1993. APHIS was not a thing back then. So when when fingerprints were recovered from a crime scene, all that law enforcement could do with them would be to compare them to known fingerprints. So in this case, I believe there were, if, and I'm working off memory now, but I think there was 13 fingerprints found at the scene. Uh, six of those, I believe, were compared and matched to El Nora. There was either and that maybe six or seven and there were six or seven unknown fingerprints on the crime scene. And of those fingerprints, the ones that were really significant were the ones that were found on the phone that was uh, that had been yanked out of the wall. And was it was put on the floor right next to the bedroom where Elnora was attacked. I mean, that's an item that we know for sure that the killer touched. All of those unknown fingerprints were compared against. Edward H. and Leonard Mosley back at the time of the murder in the original investigation. And both of them were ruled out. So we've been sitting there for all these years, over over 25 years now, having these, these fingerprints from the crime scene that were on the phone, amongst other places as well, that had been ripped off the wall and no one to compare them to. And, and they were kind of lost for a while. But Allison, you were able to track them down and actually do some comparison with those, right?
2: Yes, that's right. So in October of 2016, I want to say, is when I started working on the FBI to figure out where those fingerprints were. And after months and months of working, we figured out that they were actually – they have templates of them. Um, at the time, they were in D.C., but now they're in Quantico. And we needed those fingerprints run through APHIS which actually technically isn't even AFIS anymore. Now they're incorporating it into something called NGI. But, um, you know, the FBI was very difficult to work with on that. And I was getting nowhere. I knew that they had the templates and, you know, that they would be able to run them through some kind of fingerprint comparison database, which has never been done before in the case, but they just weren't willing to help me out on it. So I reached out to Matt. That was one of those things where I reached out to Smith County and Smith County was like, yeah, sure, let's see what we can get done. And so Smith County urged them or asked them to go ahead and run the prints through um, NGI, which is what the FBI did.
1: Right. And also, I want to throw a little bit of credit out to, um, if, if I remember correctly, Jim Clementi helped us out a little bit on that with a contact in the very, very early stages. He had pointed us in the direction of somebody that worked in the FBI lab at Quantico who was able to do as much as tell me that uh, when I had messaged her that they were there, but she can't tell me anything else. And then you had to then fight and fight and fight after that.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. I'd forgotten about that, but that did happen.
1: Yeah. So this has been a, this has been a long effort that it had to go all the way to the writer of criminal minds to get this done.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, whatever it takes to get the job done. Right.
1: Right. right. So, <laughs> Ultimately, at the end of the day, they found the fingerprints, the templates, and they ran them through the NGI database. Is that how it's called NGI database?
2: That's right. It's NGI. Yep. It's next generation something.
1: Right. (laughs) Uh, They ran them through the next generation something database, and they they did not get any hits. Uh, But the next step for us is, you know, we have a kind of a, a list of potential suspects. And so... You went through to see if anybody that we might consider who either might be a suspect or might have a reason to be on the crime scene, uh, if they were in the database, and you found there were a couple people in the database that were ruled out as the depositor of those fingerprints. And in this case, there was only two people. You know, as I said, the prints were already compared to Ed and Leonard. They were ruled out um, of everyone else connected to the case. The only other two people that were in the system were Francis Johnson. And Ed's mother, Margie, and they were compared against both of those and neither of them were the contributors either. That's right. Right. So at this point, we can say that the the prints, at least now, that doesn't mean anybody's, you know, ruled in or ruled out. uh, But we know that the fingerprints on the phone and other places on the crime scene did not belong to Margie Jackson or Francis Johnson or Leonard Mosley or Ed Aids. That's right. And then that leads us to what I think legally, from the way you explained it to me, and I'll let you explain it yourself because you'll do a better job than me, obviously. This information, I don't think necessarily gets us any closer to finding out who did kill Elnora Griffin, but it does take us another step further in proving who didn't. And one of the significant things, one of the actually the only item of physical evidence. That connected Ed Eights to the murder of Elnor Griffin. That the police and prosecutors said put Ed in the trailer was the fact that they took a, a scraping off of the bottom of Ed's shoe about 24 hours after the murder, when he was being interviewed, and they had an expert testify at trial who said that that was human fecal material. He had found he, he believed it was it was feces on Ed's shoe, and that there was human protein in it. And since Elnora during the the process of the murder had defecated on the floor uh, there, they theorized presented to the jury. And I believe was a huge impact of the jury that they can put Ed inside the trailer where Nora was killed because he had human feces on his shoe, meaning it was her human feces on his shoe. And Allison, can you explain the results of the testing you did with that supposed human feces?
2: Oh, I would be happy to. So we knew that they had taken the scraping off the shoe the day after the, uh, the murder. And we still had that scraping off the shoe. And that was like item number one. I want that tested for DNA. And so we sent it out to the lab and they did all kinds of DNA testing on it. And the results of that DNA testing are that Elnora Griffin is excluded not inconclusive, not a partial profile, like it may be hers, maybe not hers. She is excluded. That is not her on the bottom of Ed's shoe. Everything that the state based its case against Ed on is a lie.
1: Right, and and not only was it not hers, but the human protein on the bottom of Ed's shoe the the profile, it's a, it's a male's DNA, right?
2: That's right. What the DNA does tell us is that there is a human profile on the bottom of that shoe. There is human DNA on the bottom of that shoe. It does not belong to Elnor. It does not belong to Leonard. It does not belong to Ed. It belongs to an unknown male.
1: Which could be any since it was on the bottom of a shoe and a day had gone by. That could be. Anyone's. I mean, he could have stepped in a piece of bubble gum or stepped in somebody's spit, walked through the septic, or it could, you had said that it could, it could even be the the person who scraped it off of his shoe.
2: I think it's probably the guy who scraped it off of his shoe or of, you know, maybe a lab tech who was handling it, just because we see that in a whole bunch of cases from the time before people were taught how to handle things properly for DNA. Uh, You see a lot of contamination from law enforcement on it. That's my suspicion. I think it's probably one of the officers, but it could be anybody except Elnora. It's not going to be Elnora. She's excluded or Leonard or Ed.
1: Right. And that is hugely significant because, as I said, that was the only item of physical evidence that the prosecution used to prove to the jury that Ed was in that trailer during the commission of the murder because they claimed that was Elnora's feces on the bottom of his shoes. So what does that mean for Ed legally?
2: It's huge for Ed legally. Uh, In Texas, we have this thing called the junk science Rip, And, um, you know, that's a big thing for us. And I really think that, you know, that's going to be something that we can utilize beneficially for Ed. And what we would have to show is that the science upon which the conviction was based was not accurate. And, you know, this is something that I've said again and again. And I mean, I'm sincere in it. And that is if you have an expert come up to you and say, this is my professional opinion as an expert, you're going to go with what the guy says, you know, even with the DNA stuff. If I have a, a lab tech come up to me and say, this is what the DNA profile is, and I'm just going to accept that because they're the expert. And, you know, I'm not an expert in these things. You know, attorneys have always done that, especially, you know, back in the, the 80s and the 90s we weren't really taught to be very critical of experts. And so the result of that is that we have a whole bunch of convictions out there that are based on experts who frankly were just wrong. The science was wrong or they were wrong or, you know, any combination of misinformation led to wrongful convictions. And that's what happened in Ed's case is, you know, you had a a serologist with the FBI coming in and saying, you know, this is, we're pretty sure that this is, you know, her feces. It's on the bottom of this shoe. What are you going to do? Of course you're going to accept that. And I think that that's what happened. But now with the technology that we have, you know, we're able to come back in and we're able to really test. Okay, well, let's see if if your theory was correct. Were you right in your assumptions uh, that you made back back in the day? And we now know we can prove definitively that he was wrong. It's... um. You know that's very significant for Ed because, from a legal perspective, it completely undermines any kind of faith that you could have in that jury's verdict. And you know we know because you know we've we've spoken with jurors and people who are, you know, involved in that trial, and we know how important that testimony was. I mean that's science. You know that's the science that puts Ed on the scene, and science is such a powerful thing. But now, thankfully, with the help of science, we can prove.
1: That it was not true, and so moving forward, you know, there's several steps and 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 kind of uh, milestones in the process you're taking with with Ed's case. You know, obviously we we were able to kind of jump the shark and 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 Ed's home already. We already have Ed at home, so he's released from prison. That's thing one, but he still has this conviction, and so there's there's two more places we can go from here. When I say we, I mean you, uh, can go from here. Uh, one is to get his conviction overturned, and then two, which is the ultimate goal, is to prove Ed's actual innocence and get an actual innocence exoneration. Do you think with the evidence that you have so far, where do you th- do you think you have a strong case for either one of those yet?
2: Well, you never can tell what a court is going to do, and I've seen courts do the right thing, and I've seen courts do the wrong thing. But, you know, this is my life and these are the cases that I live based on what I'm seeing. I think I can for sure get Ed's conviction overturned. And I think I can prove that he's actually innocent because he is actually innocent. There is no evidence of any kind of substance that, you know, remains after all of this testing that we've done.
1: Yeah, It seems to me that it's very clear there's no evidence tying Ed to the crime. And the more of a microscope we keep putting on this case, and you keep doing more testing and more investigation, the direction of the case seems to be pointing in other places. We have unknown DNA profiles. We have the semen and epithelial cells in the bedroom on the comforter. You know, there's lots of evidence that are pointing other directions and zero evidence that's pointing back at Ed 8s. That's
2: absolutely correct. And, you know, I always say whenever I'm going into any cases, I just want to know, you know, what the truth is. And, if this person's really innocent, then they don't have anything to hide. So test everything you want to test. Do any kind of you know research you want to do. Go talk to any witnesses you want to go talk to. We don't have anything to hide. And it's been like that the entire time with Ed. You can keep on testing every single piece of evidence in there. Ed is not on that scene because he didn't do it. And you know, in the middle of all this, you have the fact that the person who really did do this has not yet been held accountable for it. And, you know, my primary goal is to get Ed exonerated. But at the same time, you know, this is not okay. This is not okay for Elnora.
1: I agree 100%. And I know there's more investigation going on. And I believe that you are of the same resolve as I am, which is that we're not going to stop until we prove who actually did kill Elnor Griffin. And that person is put behind bars. That's right. Okay, Allison, well, thank you so much for coming on and explaining all this to us. I'm super excited and more confident than ever that we're going to get Ed's actual innocence exoneration before this is all over with. So uh, again, I want to thank you, and I really appreciate all the work that you've done.
2: I just wanted to thank the Truth and Justice Army for all of your work on this case and for those people who were kind enough to donate to us. You know, it's those donations that funded all of this And, you know, none of this, I don't think, would really be possible without you and without the Truth and Justice Army. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for everything that you've done and everything that you're doing for Ed and for Jesse and for people like them.
1: The wheels of justice do not spin quickly. We've known from the very beginning that it would not be a fast process to get Ed fully exonerated. But with the work that Allison and her team are doing, along with the cooperation from Smith County District Attorney Jacob Putman, I believe that we are getting closer and closer to Edward Eight's finally being declared actually innocent. But as you heard from Allison and you've heard from me over the years, The fight doesn't stop there either, because we will not rest until the murderer of Elnora Griffin is brought to justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of created in tandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at Truth Justice Pod, and my personal Twitter handle is at Bob Ruff Truth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.